0: Good and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods.
1: Welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods and I'm your host today and I hope you're having a great Monday. Our topic today is adolescent um, substance abuse and what and how do we treat adolescent substance abuse? Unfortunately, what really works, um, there aren't a lot of programs designed to help an adolescent recover. A lot of programs are designed to contain them, or, as with other adults, um, adolescents get penalized or get put in the, correct, uh, the correctional system. Um, oftentimes, what they really need is, unfortunately, not what they're able to access. And, um, our guest today is Michelle Lipinski, who is the founder and principal of the North Shore Recovery High School in Beverly, Massachusetts. For the past 20 years, um, for, well, for 20 years or more, I guess, she served in the roles as biology, health, and chemistry teacher, along with leadership and service roles such as alternative education director, adolescent-related health advisory board. She's focused on developing rigorous academic programs that address the whole child, particularly students most at risk of academic and social failure. Michelle developed the North Shore Recovery High School as a response to the overwhelming amount of students presenting with significant mental health and substance use disorders. The North Shore Recovery High School is a specialized high school designed to meet the diverse academic and emotional needs of adolescents struggling with substance abuse and its co-occurring disorders. Michelle also started the I Can Help program operated through Potential Connections LLC to address a number of the students who are unable to connect with a trusted community partner. Um, Thank you so much for agreeing to be on our show, Michelle.
2: Oh, thank you for having me, Mary. I appreciate it.
1: You know, um, I'd like to begin to talk a little bit about um, substance use, abuse um, with adolescents and can you kind of set the stage for us? What's going on how many kids are using and how many kids are in trouble as a result of using
2: um well it's funny because i wear many hats um i started as an educator and um when i started what i when i started noticing that i was losing students was about 1988 1999 and i was and i don't know what it was and so i think you know I, i took on the role of as an educator and then i started my alternative school which i um really saw a higher prevalence of students using and presenting um, completely, and I mean, they would come to school high. I mean, so I guess as an educator, you have some students who are coming in who you're like, oh, hmm, maybe they're under the influence, but you don't really know, and nobody really is teaching about it in graduate school. so. Um, but then once you start an alternative school, you see there's a really high level of prevalence of adolescents who are coming to school clearly impaired. Um, and then obviously once I started a recovery school, because I really didn't feel like I was adequately helping the students who were at my alternative school, um, I realized that the, that the actual um, numbers are, are much greater than I had ever anticipated. Um, And it's funny because the students that I have, they come from all walks of life. They come from every community here on the North Shore of Boston. And, you know, I thought it was going to look a lot different. And what I've realized is that, you know, substance use doesn't have really clear boundaries. So you have intact families. You have kids that are homeless. You have I mean, it's really interesting that um, my perception of what I was going to see when I started this is actually not at all what it turned into be, which is just it, it crosses all boundaries. Um, and as we know, uh, you know, most of the students start with marijuana or alcohol, and then uh, some students are just wired differently physiologically and maybe environmentally, and if they have trauma, watch out, because those numbers are going to grow pretty quickly. And the, uh, the numbers of things that they have access to are so much higher, Mary. Like I didn't realize, you know, I have three children of my own, and I would say and they're teenagers, a couple of them, and I would ground them, and then I would come into school and, you know, just be just talking about, you know, their behavior over the weekend. And I would say, oh, you know, she was 20 minutes late after the football game, and so I grounded her. And they just kind of laughed. My students would go, why? They're like, oh, she can get delivered fast. She can get a pizza. You know, technology has also changed the face of addiction and, have, and have the availability of, um, of of what's out there. And then, then you, you know, know, they just tell me that I can walk through a school, a high, high school, now, or a traditional high school, school, hopefully not my high school. And I can, I can see, see, you know, some students were like, oh, yeah, over there you can get your weed. Over there you can get your pan Over here you can, I mean, they have designated places in the high schools where things are available. And once again, this isn't something I was familiar with when I was in a larger high school.
1: Do you think the high school knows that's going on? Um, you know, once again, I, one of the
2: reasons I took this job was because I didn't see it. Um, part of my story of of, of starting this school was um, I had a little girl who was coming out of treatment. And I don't know if any, you see these children, I mean, you see anybody before they go into treatment, they look a little hollow, pretty fragile, broken down i mean physically they wear addiction and you can see it and it's really sad and but when they come out of treatment they're just they're whole and they're amazing and they're there and they're present and you can like see them for the first time in a while and so this little girl came to my um to my alternative school and this was after i was thinking about this whole recovery school option and And I thought, you know what, I'm going to try my own little experiment. I'm going to make sure that this child stays sober. And she was with me for three full days. And when I say with me, like, I really kept this child close to me at my side for three full days, whether I was teaching, whether I was running an errand. She was really next to me. And at the end of the third day, she looked at me and she said, and she started crying. She said, like, I can't be here. And I was like, hun, like, you were with me. Like, what do you mean? And she pulled out a list of 30 things that I didn't see. And I was aware of it. Like I was even, like I had been, oh, no, don't worry, I'm going to handle this. I'm going to make sure that I'm addressing these these children's needs. And what she said to me was, you know, so-and-so left to go to the bathroom and came back high. So-and-so was snorting something off the back of the desk over there. I was down in the gym with so-and-so and my other classmates, and the gym teacher had on Corona flip-flops. And so-and-so, um... You know, I was getting checked in for school, and the woman checking me in had a Budweiser keychain, and so I mean, to the point where the topper was—it was like a Thursday afternoon, and and I and and I don't drink, and there's one of of my staff members, an administrator in the high school, stuck her head into my door and said, "Hey, we're going out for drinks tonight. You want to go?" And all I could think of is how many times has that happened, like, and I didn't see it, Mary. So, I guess do people know about it? They may know peripherally, that it's there, but I don't think they understand the impact that it has, the culture of the school. I don't think they understand the impact that it has on young people. And just the message that we're sending, I mean, completely subliminally, I don't think anyone's out there to get kids addicted, but I don't think we, uh, a lot of schools as, as educators, um, really know the extent
1: of what's going on. You know, it's... Being an addiction counselor and a nurse, I find that troubling. Um, I, there, there's a local high school here in New Hampshire where a number of the teachers were in trouble. One who um, had a serious addiction um, had was keeping alcohol in her desk drawer. Another one um, got arrested for trying to get drugs into the state prison. But, you know, I, I don't know... Why it is that teachers aren't taught about addiction, why doctors aren't taught about addiction, Mm -hmm. why there's this vacuum of knowledge when it's everywhere. I mean, addiction is everywhere, and substance misuse is everywhere as well.
2: Right. Um, I I 100% agree with you, but I think until you're kind of hit over the head with it, you don't really want to open your eyes because it's a pretty dark place. And, you know, I, I think that some people, it's just too hard to look in that door, um, and, and it's if no fault of their own, but until it starts really impacting. I mean, the thing that changed for me was my superintendent's son became addicted to opiates, and then I saw some doors open, and I saw, you know, the face of this change, and having more, having less stigma attached to that really helped open doors to start the school. But it wasn't until someone. Of like you said, like you know, there's teachers and they're getting arrested. Then it's always the teachers. Oh, of course it's them. It's what I mean. There's always blame to be had, um, and it's and it's never the school's fault, you know. So I, I just think it's a pretty dark place to expect people to want to open that door willingly <laughs> until you've been directly in, impacted by it, um, you know, in a, in a really significant way. I don't think you're going to open that door willingly. And, and I think that there's policies out there that keep kids sick, Mary. Like, I'm not sure if you have, you know, zero-tolerance policies at your know, local high schools, but there's these policies that just keep children sick. And, you know, if, if someone's caught high in school, if, instead of having them go to an outpatient program or seek therapy, what they do is they put them, you know, out of school suspension or in-school suspension or something else equally mm-hmm. as damaging, which is, you know, they're going to just get high all day.
1: I know. I never could understand that when when a, somebody has a problem in school, you get suspended, so you have more free time to get into more trouble. That to me just never made sense. Right, right.
2: Yeah. I, that's I, you know what? And exactly, it's kind of the, the antithesis of what we believe is right for children. Um, right. Happens. I mean, it's fun. It's funny because, and that happens in the recovery world too, Mary. I think that um, students get kicked out for using, but yet they're there for using. You know, right. for me, and it, says, it just sets a really horrible, um, I don't want to say precedence, but for me, it just, um, he, I, here you go. It sets a really bad, um precedence for what we do with children when they're the sickest. Um, and once again, if somebody's using at school, they're already crossing lines to show us that they need more help. So for us to say, right. well, you know, now you've got a five-day suspension, uh, I mean, like I said, it just, for me, doesn't sound like it's the right thing to do.
1: I know. I, I know there are policies that need to change. I think the, the whole quote system has to change in general. Um, my daughter is in Florida and she teaches second grade. And she had a little boy miss a uh, day of school last week, and he came in the next day. And she said to him, "You know, where were you strange? And he said, "Well, it's kind of a secret, but my mommy drinks, and she couldn't get me to school yesterday." Mm-hmm. And he's seven years old. And, yeah. and I said, well, what are you going to do? And she said, well, I'm going to call the guidance office and, um, and hopefully they'll get back to me today. But there really isn't much we can do because he's, he did come back to school. He's clean. There's no bruises. There's no, uh, visual sign of neglect. So, you know, by law, they can't do anything. So it's, um, other than just monitor him and, um,
2: well, you know, it's, it's interesting
1: enough really kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll be right back to solve the problems of the world with Michelle after <laughs> this commercial.
3: <laughs> You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: Welcome back everyone. Today we're talking about adolescent substance abuse and developing adolescent peer recovery supports in our communities with Michelle Lipinski, who is the founder and principal of the North Shore Recovery High School in Beverly, Massachusetts. Um, before we went to break, we were kind of talking about the system. And so many parts of it don't aren't connected. And oftentimes if somebody does get referred to one part of the system, they may fall between the cracks. Or they may get exactly what they need, but what do we need to do in the community to help these kids? Um, well, at the risk of
2: going back to prevention, I really feel like we have to find we have so there's a ton of data out there, and I am a huge fan of the data, although it doesn't i don't think we have just we 've only had a tip of the iceberg of what adolescents need. Um, it says that if we catch them quicker, if we identify them quicker they're more likely to not have to hit that notion of rock bottom or you know they can turn it around there's there's this whole notion that we can't catch them until they're really far gone until they've really hit this this point of no return and then they can finally start to return but what i've seen is if we identify them earlier and we know that they're you know experienced significant trauma we have precursors to addiction that we know are there And whether it's, you know, parents or family members that you know have gone through this or, once again, environmental, genetic, trauma, any of those things that we know are precursors to addiction, why are we not making ourselves more available to hear um, what students need? But, once again, I think it really speaks to the fact that we have to ask those questions, and those are pretty scary questions to ask.
1: Well, that's exactly right, because some of those questions imply... um, or may elicit some shame or blame and it's really important to understand and to normalize for families that um, you know, there's a lot of families that have a history of addiction, but addiction is a brain disease mm-hmm. and it doesn't make you a bad person if you have an addictive disorder or you are abusing alcohol and drugs, but that it, that does affect your ability to parent and, and I think that, you know, how providers um, phrase those questions and direct those questions is really, really important how anyone
2: approaches that is really important because as a high school administrator and previously obviously running this school makes myself a lot easier i mean it makes it a lot easier for me to call home and say if somebody is relapsing but um, my previous school, I would see behaviors that um, would would be alarming, and I would call home, um, and I would oftentimes be met with a lot of anger about what are you calling my son or daughter? What do you mean? What do you do? You have proof of this? Like, like you said, it was like the shame and blame of addiction. Um, and I would say, hey, hey, I'm not talk- I'm not saying your kids are not. All I'm saying is this is what I see and I'm really nervous for them. And is there any way we can, you know, we did do a bunch of help- self-help groups at the school and we had community groups. Is there any way we can talk about this? Are you comfortable with your son or daughter participating in one of these groups? And typically I was met with absolutely not. I don't want my kids hanging out with those kids. Um, so until we can knock down those walls, I think there's there's significant work to be done. But what I instead of having that blame and shame and you know pouncing on kids when they're when they're high, I think it would be great to find a way to open up a discussion with them and you know even starting in second grade, so that little boy knows that your daughter is a good person to talk to, and that he's not going to get ripped out of his mother's arms, and he's not. I mean, so so at least the conversation can go in more of a positive way. Of you know what, hun? That happens to a lot of kids. You know what? Maybe we can we call your mom? Like, I don't know how that's supposed to happen. I really don't, Mary. But no, but it's like that huge, like, you know, sitting at an IEP meeting and knowing that there's these things going on and nobody says it. (laughs) Like, what can we just talk about the fact that mom's been drinking? Can we do that? I mean, I'm fortunate enough to be where I sit and I have parent groups. I'll say, you know what? I don't care about your drinking problem. And if it's affecting your kids, you can bet that I'm going to address it. So upon entering into my school, if you have a problem and you subject your child to it, we're going to talk about it. And, you know, if you want to, if you want to drink and your kid, you know, it's, it's triggered by your drinking, you better be taking that into your bedroom and locking the door and not letting your kid see it. So I can have those conversations now, which is so great because before it was like I was just, you know, hiding behind these these false walls that were there and going, oh, no, no, nothing's wrong, we're all good, close the door, close the door, shut the door, you know. And now I kind of feel like at least I can have those conversations. It's very freeing.
1: Michelle, how do parents respond when you set those limits?
2: Before I even enroll their children, I'll say, if, if there's something going on at the home that's impacting the wellness of your child, um, we're going to have a conversation. I'm not going to call people. I'm not going to automatically file, you know, 51As on them. Or, I mean, I don't want them taken out of the home, but we have to be able to address it. And almost every single time they'll say, okay, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. Because they're so desperate to get their child into a place where they know that they're going to be successful.
1: You know, um how many recovery schools are there in Massachusetts?
2: There's four. Um, there's one here, there's one in Boston, there's one in Springfield, and there's one in Brockton.
1: And are recovery schools in
2: every state? They're not. I don't know exactly how many states have recovery schools. Um, I think there's about 30 uh, nationwide. Um, I couldn't have that wrong. It might be a little over 30, a little under. Um, and there's a lot in Minnesota. Yeah, which doesn't surprise anyone, I'm sure. Um, there's yeah. a lot in Minnesota, and and like I said, I think we're the second state to have a few. I know Wisconsin has more than one. Um, Indiana has one. California. I mean, they're kind of a smattering across the map mm-hmm. right now. There's uh, Pennsylvania. I mean, if you look on the Association of Recovery Schools, I believe they have a map of all of where the recovery schools are located. But it is a shame that there's not more of these, and um, that's why, I, when I go and I speak with school systems, I like to talk about, you know, really developing recovery-oriented systems of care for these children, because not everyone is going to have the means, not every system is going to have the means to start a recovery school, but I'm really gung-ho on trying to find, you know, positive pro-social supports for these children. I also sit on the National Youth Recovery Foundation, which you know what we're trying to do is we're trying to have you know a way for these young people to meet up with one another in a safe way, in a safe environment, um, and have fun things to do because recovery for young people is going to look a heck of a lot different than recovery for somebody that's my age. I mean, they they're you know they love the midnight meetings. They love I mean they just love that that fringe way of of and I'm lumping all of them in together and I don't mean to do that because I know there's plenty of people that don't but. It just you have to fill that, that excitement void for them. So, um, so yeah. So I you think know, there's a few recovery schools, yeah. but mostly importantly is like developing recovery supports for adolescents.
1: So um, when an adolescent goes to your your school and they graduate, they get a diploma from the state of Massachusetts.
2: They get um, they get a diploma from their sending district. So if they're okay. from Beverly, Massachusetts, their their school diploma diploma will say Beverly high school instead of recovery high school, because once again, we don't want them to have to live with this stigma for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, this, for some students, this is just a phase that, you know, they're going through, and for whatever reason, they can work through it, and they maintain their recovery, and there's plenty of students that we have that, you know, went here for two years or so, and, you know, they're graduated college, and they're moving on in their lives, and, um, you know, it doesn't it's not such a prevalent part of their lives. They check in with us. But it's not something that they don't need that level of support anymore. So,
1: right. well, some people age out around 24 anyway. Mm. You know, so I think what's nice about having an alternative for high school is that um, you know kids can stop that, can break that cycle so much earlier, and develop you know healthy social skills and healthy skills to for stress and whatever, and they they don't have to go down that path. Um, as long as, as other people do.
2: I, I 100% agree with you, um, which is that whole thing, that notion we started with at the beginning of this was if you catch them and you can stop some of that pain from happening, um, I, I do believe they have a better chance of getting quick, better quicker, whatever better means. Um, and I'm going to go back to what you said before. They're not bad kids. These are children who are very sick and very complex and have a brain disorder, and we have to figure out how to get that better.
1: Well, and not only that, I think that, as you said earlier, too, is that when somebody comes to school high, there needs to be a response to that, because for for any number of reasons, it's just like if somebody came to school in the middle of an asthma attack, you're not going to send them home for five days because they have an asthma attack. You're going to find an intervention that's going to help them get through the asthma attack and then prevent it happening again. And um, that's so true. When when kids come to school high, there needs to be a way to offer them support, to mm-hmm. observe them while, while, until they come down off of whatever it is they're using, mm-hmm. and then to be able to do a brief intervention so that they know that there's an alternative to what they're doing.
2: That's a perfect analogy. I mean, I, I can't I would I can't agree with you more. I think that um, these children hear a message over and over and over that they're bad, and they start to believe it. Um, instead of hearing the message of, wow, you know what, what you're doing is probably not so healthy for you. How can we help you not come so high, you know? I I don't think that that happens quite often (laughs) when you shoot at high school. Wow, looks like you're a little Um, bit high, so we're going to talk to you when you're not, um, right, in a more positive way. And the whole expert way of dealing with adolescents, I think, is really helpful if you're doing that, that brief screen, a nice positive intervention, and then a little motivational interviewing, and I mean, We use it here, and I would say, you know, almost 100% of our students who need treatment get to treatment.
1: Um, And I think that kind of speaks to the other um, real challenge is the access to treatment for adolescents, Um, because I know in New Hampshire there aren't that many um, adolescent programs available for for kids, Mm -hmm. especially if they if they want to be able to stay in school.
2: Exactly. I mean I, I will get I get calls from all over the country about, you know, how do I get my son, daughter insert name here into treatment and I think that there's so many barriers. I mean, starting with I mean, we are so familiar now with the landscape of whom we work with that um, we know who's gonna be working at certain times in the emergency rooms or the emergency services and who's more likely given their insurance to get into the system. I mean, it's like a, yeah, it's like this labyrinth. It's an incredibly complex labyrinth. It's not like, oh, go to the emergency room. They'll get you something. And I'm not at all faulting emergency rooms either because they're incredibly complex too. But if it were just like A plus B B equals C, it would be a lot easier. But I think there's just so many barriers to keeping these children sick, and access is huge. Um, I even have people who have worked with therapists since they were 7 or 8 years old, and their therapist, as soon as they develop a substance use disorder, because before it was just a mental health disorder, and as soon as they develop a substance use disorder, they'll be like, oh, no, I can't take you. I, I can't work with kids with substance use disorders. I mean, it's just... And once again, I don't think it's an either or for me. I think it's it's all of it, and um, and we have to find a way for people to be willing to have those conversations with young people who are ready to get the help. Because I can't tell you how many times I've sat in emergency rooms with adolescents, and they just get frustrated, and then they start going off, and then they're like, "Oh, get out of here," um, yeah. or people who really want, uh, you know, to go to a detox or who really need a medical detox, and their insurance will say, "Oh, no, no, he can just do outpatient." Um, <laughs> so, I mean, once again, I'm preaching to the choir. I know that people out there have had, to, you know, probably similar stories to that, and I'm not at all putting down the system of emergent care. I think that it's, it's, but it's relevant. It's a relevant thing to say. I can't imagine being a person who knows nothing about this, and all of a sudden my son or daughter, you know, needs a detox because it, it you're going to have to really learn the system quickly because it's not like, oh, here you go, and then they pass them off and, you know, they're all better.
1: No, that that doesn't happen. (laughs) Um, Not not at all, no. Um, And we'll be right back after this commercial um, to talk more more with Michelle. If you have any questions, please give us a call.
3: You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
3: Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness
1: Welcome back, everyone. Um, Our guest today is Michelle Lipinski, who is the founder and principal of the North Shore Recovery High School in Beverly, Massachusetts, and we're talking about um, adolescent substance abuse and um, developing peer supports in our communities for for our young children and our adolescent children. Um, I really think it's important to underscore, Michelle, something you said earlier about people hitting bottom. Um, the whole notion that an adolescent has to hit bottom before they can get treatment or you know throw them out of the house and you know if they're out on the street then you know that'll that'll shock them into um, wanting to be in recovery and and I just know from my own experience that you know all it does is traumatize people more and it makes it even harder to get into to treatment because it just all the experiences you have when you're on the street it just adds to the shame and blame that people feel and it's more of a barrier to get kids into treatment and that these kids should not be thrown away they really need to be loved and there has to be a safe place as you were saying in the community for these kids to go. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I, I just,
2: yeah, I, I can't agree with you more. Um, um, There's this that notion of rock bottom is it's pretty prevalent in in the culture of recovery and and I do believe for some people that is the case Um, but when you're talking about children I think they're so complex and then you add in the whole my brain isn't functioning properly because I'm an adolescent piece like so there's so many factors playing into their um, their condition I don't know what to say like their behaviors because I think their behaviors are such that um, you know I remember watching these kids, uh, students of mine previously, go through these, um, like as soon as they get their license, you know they've just watched 9,000 hours of people being ejected through their windshields because they're going 100 miles an hour. And they know that you're not supposed to text and drive, and they know that you're not supposed to smoke butts and drive, and they know that you're supposed to wear your seatbelt. But I'll be darned if within that first month, Children are coming in with, (laughs) I just got my first accident. I mean, they have these stories of, I'm like, well, didn't you, oh, yeah, that's right. Your prefrontal cortex isn't quite developed yet. So that whole saliency of memory, not so much working for them. So it has to be a continual, ongoing, oh, oh, that's right. Well, maybe we could do this again. I mean, I I just feel like there's no, like, dog and pony show that we can do for adolescents to say, don't do drugs. Um, And we always have to let them know that it doesn't have to be, that bad for them to realize that they can stop or they need to stop and we have to show them those lines because um although i think a certain age like i think you said 24 24 is probably that age where you know what you might want to consider doing some you know hardcore you know that use that word use that word enable go ahead use the word enable at 24 but i can't enable a 16 year old i mean What else can you? I don't think that word should be used in conjunction with 16-year-olds, and I'm not sure if that's going to be met with a lot of positive response. But these children who come to me, they need help. They don't need people like you said, telling them they're bad. They already know they're bad. They feel they're bad. I don't think they're bad, but in their hearts and their heads, they've heard for the past couple years because they have put their families through significant amounts of toil, and You know, and once again, it's about breaking these kids down to build them back up, and maybe that works for some, but for my students, I mean, it's 365 fresh starts, and no matter what happened yesterday, we're going to work on it today, and we're going to try to develop those skills necessary to compete in the workforce and college. I mean, we're going to keep at it and get them into an emotional place where they can actually hear people not tell them exactly what they want and not react negatively to it. Um, So... Yeah, I mean, we work with students in all phases of recovery, and um, and we try to let them know that, you know, if, if here's a line, you just picked up a charge, that's a line that you cross. most people don't, you know, and then we'll add statistics to it, you know, 89% of kids don't usually pick up charges at age 16, you know, we'll put statistics to a line and say, when you cross this line, it's showing us that you're adding more deviant behaviors to your addiction, or you're adding more deviant behaviors to your mental health, or whatever it is, but... They need those lines. We need to keep telling them where those lines are, but they're super fuzzy. And in a moment of, you know, we have kids who have been three or four years sober, and in a weak moment, in a relationship moment, in a, you know, mom and dad fighting moment, and whatever, they make a bad choice. And when I look at it, I don't always say, okay, you just threw away three and a half years of sobriety. I'll just say, well, you know what? We'd have to figure out another fresh start. You didn't lose that. You still have that. Let's add another day to it, you know? Um, because, I don't know, it's just, it, for them, a dark moment happens so quickly um, that the notion of rock bottom, I think, like you said, you know, pushing them out onto the street to experience more negativity is just their kids and their brains aren't working pro- I mean, properly. Um,
1: well, right, and and the other thing that you touched on, too, is that parents need support. You know, when, when you have a son or daughter who's actively using substances, where do you go in the community for help? Right. You know, who's going to help you, you know, set that line? You know, you don't want to, you know, it seems to be very black or white. Either you quote unquote enable them, or you get told, you know, set them loose and let nature take its course. And when they hit bottom, they'll come back. But there's there's no side by side support for parents saying, you know, right. we're going to set a limit tonight and tell them you love them and let's let's work out a plan for the next twenty four hours. Yeah. And 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 I think that just adds to the family's stress and 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 their inability to deal with. With this behavior and and with the, this brain disease,
2: mm-hmm. you know. Yep, I, I agree. I um, you know, we we have a, we encourage our parents to go to whatever self help group they can go to, whether it's going to be Al Anon, a Families Anonymous, or Learn to Cope, only because it's really important to hear multiple messages, um, and to put faith in other parents who have been there, but to also just to, to make sure that you are able to discern whether or not they're talking about a forty year old. Son or daughter and you're talking about a 14 year old son or daughter so we always preface it with just remember it, the message that you hear really is something that you need to to process through but we offer I mean it's so great that my, our parents call us and say okay is this a, a, so-and-so a safe person can I let them hang out well it's like almost you know starting kindergarten all over again and figuring out who the safe people are and you know it's it's interesting um, I do think the parents need a ton of support because They've been beaten down, whether it's just by their child or the system, or and they're so. I mean, no, there's nothing worse than walking in and seeing your child overdosed and having to have that moment of going, is he or she going to live? And I could say most parents in my school have, have have seen their children in such a compromised way that they're afraid they're not going to walk on this earth any longer, and that in and of itself is so super traumatic. Um, so I mean, so I mean, parent groups across the board are amazing, and I think that. Um, you know, I hope that the community itself can somehow come together to develop those safe spots. I think I told you a little bit you know about the I can help program that I developed with um a friend of mine, dr. Barb Frey, and it was really in response to this by this time a child i don't I'm not sure about your um about a lot of your homes that you work with, but by the time they hit our door, mary like they're pretty broken and it, it does take a lot of work to get them healed and, and functional and back to where they need to be so we were hoping by you know making it clear that there's people in this community whether they're in the recovery community whether they're in the mental health community whether they're just teachers who want to stay after school people in the boys and Girls club the YMCA firefighters teach um, coaches let's train them to be people in the community that these children will speak to and and we do we do these trainings um, we've done it all over the country and we'll go and teach them about motivational interviewing and how to speak with a child who says, you know what, I, I don't need any help, I'm fine. Um, and then say, okay, well, maybe you are, so come back when you do need help. And not trying to do that, aha, I knew you were using, kind of
1: a t- approach. It's
2: it's more of we, we put these posters up that talk about precursors to addiction or to significant m- mental health disorders. And um, and whether sometimes they're up in nurses' offices, sometimes they're up in... Um, pediatrician's offices, sometimes they're up in classrooms. But it's really about, and then then what you do is um, if they feel like they're experiencing some of those um, precursors, one of them is I feel sad or lonely or unmotivated. Well, heck, don't we all? But if you have other ones on there that feel like, you know, I feel very alone, I'm not safe in my home, whatever it is, then talk to somebody who has this I can help logo. And then we have logos in the community that say "I, I can help, I understand, I'm committed. And as soon as you find those people, you know, those are your safe people you can talk to and they're not going to drop you because I think so often children will ask for help when they're in a really high crisis moment and then they back it off and then we don't follow up with them because then, you know, they kind of feel like they're naked or they feel like they've exposed too much or maybe they haven't gotten the response that they wanted so they don't come back. And then we're like, oh, look, we fixed them. Um, Well, this is just keeping an ongoing, open, supportive network of people Um, Because, honestly, the stuff that maybe a child will come to me to isn't going to be the same stuff that they go to my history teacher for because they know who we are and, at the essence of what, what they want, they're going to be able to get from somebody else. So I don't expect one person, even though there's incredibly talented student assistant people in our schools, I don't expect one person should carry that load of being able to help multiply deficient children. Does that make sense?
1: It makes total sense because... Didn't somebody very famous say it takes a village?
2: (laughs) Yeah, somebody quite famous. Um, Well, we have to develop that village, though, because for so long, I mean, and I I just think that for so long people struggle with their bad. You know, what happened was back in uh, the late 80s, early 90s, I think, um, well, I don't think, uh, a friend of mine came up with the idea, uh, Kevin Jennings from Safe and Drug-Free Schools, he was in the Department of Education, he came up with that little triangle so, people that were having gay, lesbian, transgendered, bisexual were able to come and talk to someone who had that triangle because they believed, or they, I went to a training back in the late 90s when I was a science teacher, so I can have adolescents come and talk to me. And that was the beginning of stigmatizing people who were gay or people who were bisexual, transgendered, whatever sexuality um, they were going to call themselves. And that was the beginning of destigmatizing that. So, that's what I'm hoping, not in that same notion, because that's a Super duper worldwide. But like, just for someone to know that if you come to me, I'm never gonna say, you did what? You did what? That was stupid. I'm never, that word, those words are never gonna come out of my mouth. I'm gonna say, wow, okay, so how can we help you? What are we doing? What are we looking at? And, you know, who do we call? Let's look through this resource manual. I mean, it's not about those aha moments. It's about, okay, let's embrace this and figure out what you need next. Um, and how and you find Kevin, out
1: about I Can Help? Is there a website or something? It is. Yes, ICanHelp.me. It's all one word. I Can Help. Okay. And um,
2: how often do you do the trainings? Well, since I'm trying to run a school here, <laughs> try not to have any too much uh, any conflict here. Um, it just depends. Um, you know, probably once a month I'll do it with with schools within our uh, North Shore Education Consortium. Um, and, you know, we're trying to figure out how we can train the trainer. Have, we have some people who are out there doing it now, and I don't have to be involved in those trainings anymore, which has kind of freed me up to, um, you know, do stuff like this. Um, but, you know, if they need a training, we can, we're trying to work with some online education also. Um, it really is like it's almost a no-cost thing. <laughs> it's not like we're. Tr- we're I'm not going to go out and be a millionaire on this one. All I really right. care about is the fact that more t- children are staying on this earth and, you know, training people to say, like, no, 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 your response to them isn't, are you, what, you're a moron? No, are, are your response to them is saying, wow, that sounds like that must hurt a lot to be where you are. What can I do for you? Or, you know, don't make it so stigmatizing. And, um, and let kids come to us. I mean that's the beauty of it. I mean, we did um, a pilot, and
1: there were 600 people. <laughs> and we'll be right back after this commercial to hear about the um, pilot study that Michelle did with I Can Help.
4: Common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's WestBridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders.
1: Ready for a revolution in diet and health? Confused about what to eat and how to prioritize your health concerns? Let's turn conventional wisdom on its head and rethink the old rules. Good health means real food, sound sleep, great supplements, and the right exercise join holistic nutritionist beverly meyer for the primal diet modern health show she'll help you rewrite your human owner's manual tune in wednesdays at 9 a.m pacific time 12 noon eastern on the voice america health and wellness channel
3: your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness
1: Welcome back, everyone. Um, We're going to continue our conversation with Michelle Lipinski, who is the founder and principal of the North Shore Recovery High School in Beverly, Massachusetts. Um, Michelle, before we went to break, you were talking about um, a study that you did. We did. We did a a pilot um,
2: with... We see I Can Help program, which looked at, um, we, we were, there was 24 people who were trained, and it was a six-week pilot. And what they did is they put these posters up in their classrooms or their offices or wherever. And then we did a, a study that showed um, how many students really responded to that. And it, not necessarily how many people got linked into a service and have remained there forever. It's really how many people came to a person and said, what does that mean? You know, I, I one of those up there I might have, you know, I... I think I'm on blacked out when I was drinking. What does that mean? Um, and had just approached them to, to have a question, and, and there were over 600 um, adolescents who just you know, posed a question, and there were over 200 adolescents in six weeks with 24 people being trained that actually got linked into a service that previously wow. may or may not have uh, been linked. Um, but really measuring the amount of kids who want to talk about this But really, I don't think have an outlet. You know, I I also you know I I I do give a lot of credit to to Kevin Jennings um, because of he because of him with that with the GLBT triangle is when I realized uh, we need to have something that's there and visible, and that was good. Um, But conversely, I I think that there's there's a lot of other I like I go to the dentist and I see like these (laughs) I don't know you might have this amount of pain if. And one of those like things where you kinda of can gauge or self regulate based on mm-hmm. um, right, how how well you're feeling, how not well you're feeling. Well these posters, what I'm guessing is if they're up on a wall, say in a nurse's station in a nurse's office in a school, and a child comes in and they're kinda of hung over and they're looking at it and they're going, Huh, well I have two of those. And then six months later they're sitting there again, mm-hmm. they're like, Wow, I had two back in, you know, November. Now it's April and there's five of those. I wonder if that means I should talk to somebody. And um, when I was Part of a regular school, we had these National Honor Society inductions, and um, and I always got chosen to be a sponsor for one of the students to be their National Honor Society person. And I would look around every year, and I would see the same people, and I'm thinking, these are your people. Like, these are the people from kindergarten to 12th grade that are there, they're staying after school, and the communities are going to the baseball games. They're the ones who... You know, probably have a house full of kids on the weekend. I mean, these are the people who children respond well to. And it's not just five or ten. I mean, we're talking 50 people in this room, and they were the same people every year. So collectively, I know there's people out there that care and want to make a difference. And if we hand them something and say, here's how you can do it, and we're not doing counseling, and you're not doing these, I so they mean, I they can help program you, make sure you know what you're not doing. But what you are doing is you're just safely giving a, a voice to these children who really don't have it.
1: What does a day look like in a recovery school?
2: <laughs> um, well, today's Monday, so you probably don't want to judge today um it 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 looks. You know, it looks like a regular school. We're obviously a lot smaller. We have about 60 students, um, but we have math, science, English, social studies. We have after-school opportunities, which is that loud music going on in the background because the kids are playing in the band room. Um, in our band room, like, it's not trumpets and tubas, which it would, that would be nice, but it's more like loud guitars and drums. Um, and we try to find a way for the students to be able to quiet their bodies. Um, so we use poetry. We use a lot of written... Um, feedback. We do music feedback. Once again, I think it's all about creating a feedback loop in their heads for have, to, have them to safely reengage themselves. And to also, I think recovery is a lot of feedback loop. Like it's constantly bringing yourself back to a safe place and going, okay, and just, am I there yet? Is this, is this good enough? Should, what should I do differently? Um, and that's kind of the whole entire education process too, is just, you know, am I there yet? What can I do better? How do I do that? And, um, So we found a lot of, like I said, it's a regular school. We use a lot of physical education, arts and drama and music. Um, And We have after-school opportunities up until 5.15. And then there's drug testing. That probably doesn't usually happen at a regular school. We have somebody sitting in the main hallway outside my office collecting urines all day. That probably doesn't happen (laughs) at a regular school. It does here. Um, We work on restorative practices. So if a child knows that someone else in the community is using, um, we would appreciate a heads up. And it's typically something along the lines of, I just want to let you know so-and-so posted something on Facebook. You should possibly look at it. Or I printed this out for you with a text I got from so-and-so. Just keeping each other safe. They monitor themselves. They regulate themselves. It's it's incredible. They're close. They're compassionate. I mean, you walk into a group, and it's like a puppy pile. Like, they're all just collectively purring. It's very – they're kids, and they're finally they belong, and – we have groups every day and I just, I, you know, once again, I, I'm always amazed. We, uh, we started off the first year of this, if we started off this year on uh, the 29th of, of August and we did a recovery countdown and, and the students were counting how many days they had consecutively sober and, you know, they had about 5,000 consecutive days of sobriety and the one room was just the kids, not the staff. And, um, and they were so happy and so excited to get to 5,000 and, okay, how are we going to get to 10,000? And it's just, you know, it's just keeping themselves happy and safe and, um, and recovery is a huge piece of keeping them on this earth and they realize that. Um, so you actually have counseling
1: and group therapy at, during school too?
2: We do. Um, well, I wouldn't call it counseling. We do more curbside counseling. So if somebody needs 10 minutes, they'll come up to me, they'll come up to Jim, they'll go up to, you know, whoever they need. And it really takes 10 minutes to get that child back into a manageable place and back to class. Um, a lot of the students that go here have, um, taken medications that they've abused in the past, so, you know, the anxiety or their attention is pretty out of control, but what we can do is we have staff that help them manage, take them for a walk or throw some basketballs around. I mean, stuff you can't really do in a typical school day at a large school, like, oh, well, let's go to the gym, throw some baskets around for 10 minutes and get you back to class. Well, we can do that here. We're a small school. Um, We really just try to teach them ways to calm themselves and manage and get through the day. Um, And then we check in with them every morning and, you know, how was your night? Everyone stay sober, blah, blah, blah. I mean, and then they have one group a day and they focus on really the competencies of wellness, which could be relationships. So they can be health, you know, eating right or, you know, reproductive health. I mean, all of those things are part of adolescent recovery because if you don't keep all of those in check, they can all go off the deep end and that's going to be a trigger for them to relapse. And so... Throughout the day, there's constant check-ins with adolescents. Whoever's not in class is really showing us that they need a little more support.
1: What about self-help groups? Do you have any of those at school, or do you encourage kids to go? We do. Um, We encourage kids to go in pairs. We
2: have, you know, so a lot of our girls have, I kind of touched on this before, a lot of our students have experienced a lot of trauma, and they tend to be really jumpy. Um, and, you know, and they're loud. The like students tend to be really loud. So, you know, I, I think some people frown on the fact that there's young people in their self-help groups. Um, we do have some, uh, we do step work after school. We have sponsors that come and we'll do step work with the students. Um, but a lot of our students don't respond well to self-help groups. And so, you know, we do smart recovery. We do, like I said, the same thing with therapies. We do a lot of pro-social peer activities. Um, we have, um... We work with some of the faith-based community organizations outside of school, um, which, like I said, any way that we can find for them to engage in whatever they need. Um, and typically, once a student has been sober for a period of time, they'll start reengaging at a higher level with the recovery community. But I think an early recovery for an analyst, and it's just for them, it just doesn't, it doesn't work that well sometimes. Um, Once in a while, yeah, these kids they just love going to meetings twice a day, and that's great. But um, it's it's really it's so different. Every child is different, and every support system is different. And we have kids in group homes, and we have kids who don't have rides to meetings. And we, I mean, so it's really different. So our, yeah, we would love if every child, you know, as far as coming here, will have experienced this kind of a meeting, this kind of a meeting, and this kind of a meeting as part of a competency. But we don't um, we don't have any hard fast like you have to attend this many meetings per week because people don't have the same access.
1: So um, how do people get referred to your school? Well,
2: um, mostly in crisis. <laughs> I get those phone calls. My son or daughter is using. What do I do? Um, we work really closely with the Department of Public Health. Um, we're a Department of Public Health program in Massachusetts. And so we work closely with treatment providers and therapists. I am also doing a Reclaiming Futures um, project with our local court, our adolescent court system. I'm trying to keep as many kids out of the court system as possible, so stop that recidivism. So they get referred through many different avenues. And how can people get a hold of you, Michelle? Um, Well, you can look at North Shore Recovery High School. You can look at me up through there, or you can contact me through the I Can Help
1: website. Thank you so much for being our guest today. The hour has flown by, and um, thank you for doing something that really is going to make a difference in young people's lives. I hope so. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Mary. You're welcome. Have a great week, everyone. And if you have an adolescent who's using substances, give them a big hug and tell them you love them.